Section 22 of La Sommoire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. La Sommoire by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visitelli. Fourth part of Chapter 5. They were in a hurry, well, what, well, it was not his fault. He was doing no harm. He was not touching, he was only looking. Was it no longer allowed to look at the beautiful things that God had made? All the same, she had precious fine arms, that artful Clemence. She might exhibit herself for two sous, and nobody would have to regret his money. The girl allowed him to go on, laughing at these coarse compliments of a drunken man and she soon commenced joking with him. He chuffed her about the shirts. So she was always doing shirts. Why, yes, she practically lived in them. Mon Dieu, she knew them pretty well. Hundreds and hundreds of them had passed through her hands. Just about every man in the neighbourhood was wearing her handiwork on his body. Her shoulders were shaking with laughter through all this, but she managed to continue ironing. That's the banter, said she, laughing harder than ever. That squint-eyed Augustine almost burst, the joke seemed to her so funny. The others bullied her. There was a brat for you, who laughed at words she ought not to understand. Clemence handed her her iron. The apprentice finished up the irons on the stockings and the dishcloths when they were not hot enough for the starched things. But she took hold of this one so clumsily that she made herself a cuff in the form of a long burn on the wrist and she sobbed and accused Clemence of having burnt her on purpose. The latter, who had gone to fetch a very hot iron for the shirt-front, consoled her at once by threatening to iron her two ears if she did not leave off. Then she placed a piece of flannel under the front, and slowly passed the iron over it, giving the starch time to show up and dry. The shirt-front became as stiff and as shiny as cardboard. "'By golly!' swore Coupeau, who was treading behind her with the obstinacy of a drunkard. He raised himself up with a shrill laugh that resembled a pulley in want of grease. Clemence, leaning heavily over the ironing-table, her wrists bent in, her elbows sticking out and wide apart, was bending her neck in a last effort, and all her muscles swelled. Her shoulders rose with the slow play of the muscles beating beneath the soft skin. Her breasts heaved, wet with perspiration in the rosy shadow of the half-open chemise. Then Coupeau thrust out his hands, trying to touch her bare flesh. "'Madame, madame!' cried Clemence. "'Do make him leave off. I shall go away if it continues. I won't be intimated.' Gervaise glanced over just as her husband's hands began to explore inside the chemise. "'Really, Coupeau, you're too foolish,' said she with a vexed air, as though she was scolding a child who persisted in eating his jam without bread. "'You must go to bed.' "'Yes, go to bed, Monsieur Coupeau. It'll be far better,' exclaimed Madame Putois. "'Ah, oh, well,' stuttered he, without ceasing to chuckle, "'you're all precious particular, so one mustn't amuse oneself now. "'Women, I know how to handle them. I only kiss them, no more.' One admires a lady, you know, and wants to show it. 
And besides, when one displays one's goods, it's that one may make one's choice, isn't it? Why does a tall blonde show everything she's got? It's not decent. And turning towards Clemence, he added, You know, my lovely, you're wrong to be so very insolent. If it's because there are others here. But he was unable to continue. Gervaise very calmly seized hold of him with one hand and placed the other on his mouth. He struggled, just by way of a joke, while she pushed him to the back of the shop, towards the bedroom. He got his mouth free and said that he was willing to go to bed, but that the tall blonde must come and warm his feet. Then Gervaise could be heard taking off his shoes. She removed his clothes, too, bullying him in a motherly way. He burst out laughing after she had removed his trousers and kicked about, pretending that she was tickling him. At last she tucked him in carefully like a child. Was he comfortable now? But he did not answer. He called to Clemence. I say, my lovely, I'm here and waiting for you. When Gervaise went back into the shop, the squint-eyed Augustine was being properly chastised by Clemence because of a dirty iron that Madame Putois had used and which had caused her to soil a camisole. Clemence, in defending herself for not having cleaned her iron, blamed Augustine, swearing that it wasn't hers, in spite of the spot of burnt starch still clinging to the bottom. The apprentice, outraged at the injustice, openly spat on the front of Clemence's dress, earning a slap for her boldness. Now, as Augustine went about cleaning the iron, she saved up her spit, and each time she passed Clemence, spat on her back and laughed to herself. Gervaise continued with the lace of Madame Boche's cap. In the sudden calm which ensued, one could hear Coupeau's husky voice issuing from the depths of the bedroom. He was still jolly and was laughing to himself as he uttered bits of phrases. How stupid she is, my wife! How stupid of her to put me to bed! Really, it's too absurd in the middle of the day when one isn't sleepy. But all on a sudden he snored. Then Gervaise gave a sigh of relief, happy in knowing that he was at length quiet and sleeping off his intoxication on two good mattresses. And she spoke out in the silence in a slow and continuous voice without taking her eyes off her work. You see, he hasn't his reason. One can't be angry. Were I to be harsh with him, it would be of no use. I prefer to agree with him and get him to bed. Then at least it's over at once and I'm quiet. Besides, he isn't ill-natured. He loves me very much. You could see that just a moment ago when he was so desperate to give me a kiss. That's quite nice of him. There are plenty of men, you know, who after drinking a bit don't come straight home but stay out chasing women. Oh, he may fool around with the women in the shop, but it doesn't lead to anything. Clemence, you mustn't feel insulted. You know how it is when a man's had too much to drink. He could do anything and not even remember it. She spoke composedly, not at all angry, being quite used to Coupeau's sprees and not holding them against him. A silence settled down for a while when she stopped talking. There was a lot of work to get done. They figured they would have to keep at it until eleven, working as fast as they could. Now that they were undisturbed, all of them were pounding away. Bare arms were moving back and forth, showing glimpses of pink among the whiteness of the laundry. More coke had been put into the stove, 
and the sunlight slanted in between the sheets onto the stove. You could see the heat rising up through the rays of the sun. It became so stifling that Augustine ran out of spit and was forced to lick her lips. The room smelled of the heat and of the working women. The white lilies in the jar were beginning to fade, yet they still exuded a pure and strong perfume. Coupeau's heavy snores were heard like the regular ticking of a huge clock, setting the tempo for the heavy labour in the shop. On the morrow of his carouses, the zinc worker always had a headache, a splitting headache which kept him all day, with his hair uncombed, his breath offensive, and his mouth all swollen and askew. He got up late on those days, not shaking the fleas off until about eight o'clock, and he would hang about the shop, unable to make up his mind to start off to his work. It was another day lost. In the morning he would complain that his legs bent like pieces of thread, and would call himself a great fool to guzzle to such an extent, as it broke one's constitution. Then, too, there were a lot of lazy bums who wouldn't let you go, and you'd get to drinking more in spite of yourself. No, no, no more for him. After lunch he would always begin to perk up, and deny that he'd been really drunk the night before. Maybe just a bit lit up. He was rock-solid, and able to drink anything he wanted without even blinking an eye. When he had thoroughly badgered the workwomen, Gervaise would give him twenty sous to clear out, and off he would go to buy his tobacco at the little civet in the Rue des Poissonniers, where he generally took a plum in brandy whenever he met a friend. Then he spent the rest of the twenty sous at old Francoise, at the corner of the Rue de la Goutte d'Or, where there was a famous wine, quite young, which tickled your gullet. This was an old-fashioned place with a low ceiling. There was a smoky room to one side where soup was served. He would stay there until evening drinking, because there was an understanding that he didn't have to pay right away, and they would never send the bill to his wife. Besides, he was a jolly fellow who would never do the least harm. The chap who loved a spree, sure enough, and who coloured his nose in his turn, but in a nice manner, full of contempt for those pigs of men who have succumbed to alcohol, and whom one never sees sober. He always went home as gay and as gallant as a lark. "'Has your lover been?' he would sometimes ask Chavez by way of teasing her. "'One never sees him now. I must go and rout him out.' The lover was Gouget. He avoided, in fact, calling too often, for fear of being in the way, and also of causing people to talk. Yet he frequently found a pretext, such as bringing in the washing, and he would pass no end of time on the pavement in front of the shop. There was a corner right at the back in which he liked to sit, without moving for hours, and smoke his short pipe. Once every ten days, in the evening after his dinner, he would venture there and take up his favourite position. And he was no talker. His mouth almost seemed sewn up as he sat with his eyes fixed on Gervaise, and only removed his pipe to laugh at everything she said. When they were working late on a Saturday, he would stay on and appeared to amuse himself more than if he had gone to a theatre. Sometimes the women stayed in the shop ironing until three in the morning. A lamp hung from the ceiling and spread a brilliant light, making the linen look like fresh snow. The apprentice would put up the shop shutters, but since these July nights were scorching hot, the door would be left open. 
The later the hour, the more casual the women became with their clothes while trying to be comfortable. The lamplight flecked their rosy skin with gold specks, especially Gervaise, who was so pleasantly rounded. On these nights, Gouget would be overcome by the heat from the stove and the odour of linen steaming under the hot irons. He would drift into a sort of giddiness, his thinking slowed and his eyes obsessed by these hurrying women, as their naked arms moved back and forth, working far into the night to have the neighbourhood's best clothes ready for Sunday. Everything around the laundry was slumbering, settled into sleep for the night. Midnight rang, then one o'clock, then two o'clock. There were no vehicles or pedestrians. In the dark and deserted street, only their shop door let out any light. Once in a while, footsteps would be heard, and a man would pass the shop. As he crossed the path of light, he would stretch his neck to look in, startled by the sound of the thudding irons, and carry with him the quick glimpse of bare-shouldered laundresses immersed in a rosy mist. Gouget, seeing that Gervaise did not know what to do with Etienne, and wishing to deliver him from Coupeau's kicks, had engaged him to go and blow the bellows at the factory where he worked. The profession of bolt-maker, if not one to be proud of on account of the dirt of the forge, and of the monotony of the constantly hammering on pieces of iron of a similar kind, was nevertheless a well-paid one, at which ten and even twelve francs a day could be earned. The youngster, who was then twelve years old, would soon be able to go in for it, if the calling was to his liking. And Etienne had thus become another link between the laundress and the blacksmith. The latter would bring the child home and speak of his good conduct. Everyone laughingly said that Gouget was smitten with Gervaise. She knew it, and blushed like a young girl, the flush of modesty colouring her cheeks with the bright tints of an apple. The poor fellow, he was never any trouble. He never made a bold gesture or an indelicate remark. He didn't find many men like him. Chavez didn't want to admit it, but she derived a great deal of pleasure from being adored like this. Whenever a problem arose, she thought immediately of the blacksmith and was consoled. There was never any awkward tension when they were alone together. They just looked at each other and smiled happily with no need to talk. It was a very sensible kind of affection. Towards the end of the summer, Nana quite upset the household. She was six years old and promised to be a thorough good-for-nothing. So as not to have her always under her feet, her mother took her every morning to a little school in the Rue Polonceau, kept by Mademoiselle Josse. She fastened her playfellow's dresses together behind. She filled the schoolmistress's snuff-box with ashes, and invented other tricks much less decent, which could not be mentioned. Twice Mademoiselle Josse expelled her, and then took her back again, so as not to lose the six francs a month. Directly lessons were over, Nana avenged herself for having been kept in, by making an infernal noise under the porch and in the courtyard, where the ironers whose ears could not stand the racket sent her to play. There she would meet Pauline, the Bosch's daughter, and Victor, the son of Gervaise's old employer, a big booby of ten who delighted in playing with very little girls. Madame Fauconnier, who had not quarrelled with the Coupeaus, would herself send her son. 
In the house, too, there was an extraordinary swarm of brats, flights of children who rolled down the four staircases at all hours of the day and alighted on the pavement of the courtyard like troops of noisy, pillaging sparrows. Madame Gaudron was responsible for nine of them, all with uncombed hair, runny noses, hand-me-down clothes, saggy stockings and ripped jackets. Another woman on the sixth floor had seven of them. This horde that only got their faces washed when it rained were in all shapes and sizes, fat, thin, big and barely out of the cradle. End of fourth part of chapter five. Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.